Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, my colleague Jane Nakano interviews Dave Wogan and Jim Kendall, two of the authors of the recently published APEC Energy Demand and Supply Outlook. The Outlook provides a snapshot of regional supply and demand, but it also serves as a useful reference about the energy choices facing countries across the Asia-Pacific region. Jane recorded this episode while in Tokyo for meetings earlier this month. Let's turn it over to her now for more about the Outlook and her interview. The 21 economies that are members of APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, account for roughly 60% of the global energy demand. The APEC Energy Outlook series describes energy outlook for this dynamic region. The Outlook 2019 is the, the seventh edition and takes us through 2050. I'm joined by Jim Kendall and David Wogan. They're both with the Asia Pacific Energy Research Center based in Tokyo, Japan. So Jim, um, I mean, you and you know David are from APERC, um, but you know, but you're you know, issuing uh, this Outlook series for APEC. Um, tell me a little more uh, about, you know, h- how this has come about. Okay, so the, the APEC Energy Cooperation is a regional economic forum uh, started in 1989 and headquartered in Singapore. Its, its primary goal is to support sustainable economic growth and prosperity among its 21 members uh, by accelerating regional economic integration. And the APEC uh, Energy Working Group is the focal point of the work on energy. Uh, APERC was started in 1996 in Tokyo to support the APEC Energy Working Group. And the unique feature of APERC is that we currently have researchers from 15 of the 21 APEC economies. So one of the key activities that APERC does, and you can think of us as the energy research arm of, of APEC, is we produce an outlook um, roughly every three years. And the idea is that this provides uh, the member economies uh, with a way to look at different policy pathways and impacts uh, out into the future. And so this current edition, we look out to 2050. And so the idea is that uh, we look at different policy drivers and trends and try to construct um, an overview of uh, the energy system. So looking at uh, where energy enters the system, so looking at total primary energy supply, but also how it's consumed through final energy demand, and in between that, uh, how this transformed. And so this is in the power sector and refining and other sectors like that. And I think one of the maybe unique characteristics of APERC, and this is, I think we view this as a strength, is that we have uh, researchers coming from, directly from these member economies. And so these can be folks who are seconded from a government ministry. And so not only do they bring their expertise uh, for their specific economy, but they also take back sort of this, uh, these skills and capacities. So in analyzing data, building models, uh, writing these types of reports. So it's really this two-way flow of skills transfer, which um, as the region continu- continues to develop will be, I think, very, very important. So Jim and David, um, you know, I'd like to certainly learn, you know, what's been happening in this very dynamic region. Uh, to start with, uh, what are some of the key um, demand and supply trends that we should be aware of? Well, we see economic activity continuing to grow through through 2050, and with it, uh, final energy demand. 
Um, <clears throat> APEC wide uh, GDP reaches 174 trillion dollars in in constant 2016 dollars, and final energy demand uh, increases by 21 percent. Uh, fossil fuels continue to uh, account for at least half of total um, <clears throat> primary energy supply and final energy demand. Uh, in the business as usual scenario, fossil fuels account for 80% of supply in 2050. At the same time, uh, the future is increasingly electric. Uh, electricity demand rises with increasing demand for electric cooling, electric heating, and electric cooking. Uh, the APEC energy and intensity goal is met in the business as usual scenario, but the goal to double the share of renewables by 2030 is not met. To meet the COP21 Paris Agreement goal uh, and all the above approaches needed, and that means uh, more efficiency, more renewables, nuclear and, and carbon capture and sequestration. The, the electrification trend uh, would be, uh, would it be fair to say that it would be mainly in the power sector or how about the transportation sector? How would you see the, the EV uh, demand growth uh, uh, evolving? This is actually a trend that we're seeing um, throughout the scenarios, but through 2050 is that in the demand sectors, so buildings, industry, and transport, there's increasing electrification. And so in buildings, for example, moving away from traditional biomass for cooking and heating, and moving into more use of appliances for like space cooling and space heating and cooking even. And so we see this across the demand sectors. And this is really driven, I think, by the economic activity that we're expecting uh, across the APEC region. And a lot of this is, is happening uh, in Southeast Asia. And this is sort of one of the big takeaways that we've seen is that due to the economic growth and the population growth that's expected uh, in this sort of subregion of APEC, is that this is really driving um, kind of transformation, structural transformation of the economies, um, moving to sector uh, to services, but also in um, the residential and even sort of the more um, kind of general economy wide, where you're seeing this electrification trend um, kind of persist throughout 2050. And so this translates into the power sector, where you see this increased demand for electricity generation. I mean, APEC as a region is, is very diverse, as you noted, and so we have economies such as China and the United States, but also those in Latin America and Southeast Asian economies uh, at different stages of economic development. And so for EVs, for example, uh, I believe we see more EV deployment in economies such as China, where uh, this is really a popular way for um, personal transport, for customers or consumers to uh, purchase these types of vehicles. But APEC is very diverse, and so we have um, essentially these mega cities where um, there is varying degrees of public transport available. And so some of these, I think Jakarta comes to mind, there's still a lot of um, private ownership of vehicles, and not just uh, sedans or four-wheel kind of uh, automobiles that we expect or that we're used to thinking of, but also three-wheel three-wheelers and even kind of, you know, motorcycles and things like this. And so depending on the economy, you see different trends, but um, it is very economy specific. Mm -hmm. And so it's not necessarily EV deployment across the board for all the economies, but where it sort of fits the economy conditions. Okay, no, that's great. No, that's really helpful. Um, the, then what are some of the trends in energy trade and investment among uh, uh, these economies? 
So in 2016, um, <clears throat> we saw 72% of crude oil imports come from outside the, the APEC region. Um, <clears throat> and uh, despite having enough coal and natural gas to support its own demand now, um, APEC remains a, a net energy importer over the, the forecast period. Um, and not only does APEC go from being a net importer of crude oil, but it also starts to become a net importer of uh, petroleum products and natural gas uh, as well. Um, as far as capital investment, um, we project the, a cumulative total investment need of $48 trillion um, over the outlook <laughs> period. And 60% of that is in China and, and the United States. Uh, supply accounts for the biggest part of that, uh, 18 trillion, mostly in the upstream. Uh, energy transformation, including electricity, is, is second. And about half of that is for T&D. And uh, on the demand side, the third part, um, more than half of that is in residential buildings, so about $14 trillion. Um, where does the, the energy investment uh, money uh, come from? Well, it comes from um, uh, a variety of places. As, as you might know, that in, uh, in the APEC region, uh, investment is, is still largely driven by government. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not really driven by the, the private sector. Um, in the United States, we tend to think of investment coming from the, the private sector, but that's, that's really not the case in, in most of APEC. For the petroleum uh, product sector, you know, I, uh, there have been renewed interest and perhaps growing trend for some of the um, hydrocarbon-rich countries in the Gulf investing uh, or in working with uh, countries in Southeast Asia. Would you expect that to continue or perhaps even spread to other uh, economies under the um, APEC umbrella? Yeah, I think uh, Saudi Arabia in particular is, is looking for ways to um, expand its uh, um, <clears throat> refining activity into Southeast Asia. They're, they're building a, a refinery in, uh, in Malaysia, for example. Um, and I think that um, uh, we'll continue to, to see that trend uh, just as uh, Venezuela moved into the United States. Uh, Saudi Arabia will, mm -hmm. will seek to uh, find uh, downstream activities uh, throughout uh, Asia. Based on where we're seeing demand grow in the APEC economies, um, this is probably an area that producer na uh, economies, mm -hmm. so such as Saudi Arabia, are looking to the APEC region as a, as a source of secure demand. And so you're seeing these integrated mm -hmm. complexes, refining mm -hmm. and even petrochemicals. And I think this even extends beyond um, like petroleum products, and mm -hmm. so we're seeing, um, we're hearing, you know, more discussions around hydrogen, things like this. So I think some economies might be thinking of this as a way of essentially finding um, another use for, let's say, hydrocarbon mm. kind of assets that economies might have. And this is occurring within APEC, but also outside the APEC region, so uh, Saudi Arabia, for example. Yeah. I think hydrogen is interesting because it is a energy carrier and fuel source that I think we heard a lot about maybe 15, 
15 plus years ago, and then the conversation sort of got quiet, but it seems to be enter, uh, picking up again. And I think this is partly due to um, economies looking forward in terms of making plans and uh, with regard to the climate. And so thinking about having uh, low emitting um, kind of energy carriers or energy sources, and also economies looking for ways to utilize their hydrocarbon resources in other ways. And so, um, so we're hearing just from our conversations with different member economies throughout APEC, renewed interest, I think, and looking and exploring, like, can hydrogen be, become part of the portfolio of different economies like energy, energy products, why the, whether that's exporting, uh, so supporting trade within APEC, uh, or on the uh, importing side. Japan has a particular interest in hydrogen. Um, <clears throat> they've been, uh, uh, for the Olympics in 2020, they're planning to import uh, hydrogen from Brunei. And uh, some, sometimes they even talk about uh, <clears throat> uh, fueling the Olympic torch with, with hydrogen. Wow. Um, I don't know if that'll come about, but, <laughs> but that's, uh, that's one idea they have. Um, <clears throat> but even the Japanese say that it's going to take about um, 15 to 20 years to construct a complete hydrogen supply chain. So we're still at, at very early mm-hmm. stages. And you've mentioned uh, trade um, a little bit, uh, David, but uh, what are some of the major energy trade uh, trends uh, among the uh, 21 uh, APEC economies? I mean, there is a substantial amount of trade within APEC itself, but also, as you mentioned, from outside. And so I I think an economy like Singapore really kind of um, illustrates this, where it's a a hub in the region for um, especially crude coming in and refined products leaving. Um, one of the interesting findings from the report is that uh, is in, again, Southeast Asia, and it's traditionally been a major energy exporter, but because of the demand growth. And so we're seeing increased electrification demand growth, but also increased demand for natural gas. And, um, and so we're seeing demand, uh, demand growth and subsequently the import requirement in Southeast Asia increasing substantially through 2050. Outside of Southeast Asia, China, I think as expected, demand growth is continuing and so its import uh, requirements are also increasing. From what I understand, uh, the, the last version, uh, the one version before this, was issued in 2016. Um, you know, it's, it, that was only three years ago, but at the same time for you know, many of these economies that have been growing uh, quite quickly, being very much uh, part of the global energy uh, system. Three years can have a lot of different changes uh, and uh, developments. What are some of the major differences or changes um, that have occurred in, in th- this region, but then also in your outlook? You know, what are some of the, uh, the issues that you, you're uh, focusing or stressing? Well, we just talked about one of them, fuel consumption, uh, shifting from coal to natural gas <clears throat> as coal loses market share. Uh, you mentioned in the beginning that this forecast goes out to 2050 and that's different from the last forecast where we only went out to 2040. Uh, APEC wide we see uh, buildings and, and transport now driving uh, demand growth uh, rather than the industry mm-hmm. and that's mainly because of the shift in China away from energy-intensive industrial activity toward uh, more modern manufacturing and, and services. Um, in the, the final edition, the seventh edition, we see 
Uh, final demand, 11% lower by 2040 uh, because of lower demand in the, the industrial and, and residential sectors. Uh, China's demand is down 22% by 2040. Um, and <clears throat> uh, in the seventh edition, um, APEC achieves its, its energy uh, intensity reduction goal uh, in 2029, six years ahead of the uh, schedule, instead of uh, two years behind schedule, um, as we did in the sixth edition. Uh, for us to appreciate sort of the context in which that these um, the energy uh, you know f or fuel mixes uh, are transitioning, could you uh, tell us a little more about the goals that these economies have? Sure. APEC wide, we have uh, two energy goals um, that were set by the the energy working group of of APEC, and um, those are for uh, a reduction in energy intensity and an increase in um, renewable uh, share in the uh, in the energy mix. So the the intensity reduction goal is to reduce uh, APEC wide energy intensity by uh, 45 percent by um, <clears throat> 2035 with a base year of 2005. Um, and um, we're doing we're doing pretty well at that at that goal. So what alternative scenarios uh, did the seventh edition uh, outlook consider? So we have two scenarios. One is an APEC target scenario, and the other is a two degree Celsius scenario. Last time we had uh, improved efficiency, high renewables, and, and several alternative fuel mixes. So the target scenario includes both an intensity goal and a renewable goal. Uh, since the intensity goal is, is met in the business as usual scenario, what the, the target scenario does is really sets up a pathway that outlines what additional effort is needed to uh, meet the APEC goal of, of doubling the share of renewables from 2010 to 2030. And we achieve this through um, greater efficiency and uh, standards regulation, mainly in the demand sectors and increased policy support for renewables, uh, mainly in the transformation sectors. The two degrees Celsius scenario outlines one pathway that APEC could follow as part of a global effort that reduces CO2 emissions enough to achieve the COP21 goal of creating a 50% chance of constraining the global temperature increases to less than two degrees Celsius. How does your tw uh, two degree uh, goal scenario, um, you know, um, look, you know, in comparison or contrast to the, um, the IEA's uh, World Energy Outlook? Uh, scenario. I think the broad trends are, are similar in that to reach these deep decarbonization levels, um, you, need a, you need sort of an all-of-the-above approach where it's, you need l low or zero emission uh, sources, and so this is in power uh, primarily, um, but also you need ways to essentially remove carbon from the fossil sources uh, that are being used. So CCS plays a very important role in our uh, two degree C scenario. And this is really to get at um, the existing and remaining fossil fuels that will be used in the energy system. So d despite the high penetration of renewables um, in our scenario, uh, there's still substantial amount of fossil fuels being used. And so uh, you really need to you know, account for these emissions. And CCS, uh, in our scenario, we project 
um, becomes available after 2030, and this plays a very strong role. And so, like the IEA, we also see the increasing role of electricity. And so this is, essentially, we see emissions shift among all the sectors to the electricity sector. So as the demand sectors electrify, so there is less combustion of fuels, mm -hmm. let's say, in, um, in the building sector. So mm -hmm. let's say houses are burning uh, less less fuel for cooking and heating, mm -hmm. um, but this is transferred to the electricity sector. So, they, so then the, the objective becomes to reduce the emissions from electricity production. So this is more use of natural gas, renewables, nuclear, and also CCS. Yeah. So what are um, some of the challenges and opportunities uh, that this you know, dynamic region's energy sector is uh, facing? Well, we've talked about a couple of them. Um, <clears throat> one is um, um, this APAC goal of, of doubling the, the share of renewables. I mean, the biggest opportunities are in um, advancing the, the efficiency and, and dispatchability of, of renewable technologies. Um, and that's helpful because it, it reduces barriers to project uh, financing. Um, we uh, also think that promoting behavioral change and, and rolling out educational programs are, are important to achieving the goal. And I think this really highlights for policymakers where they can make interventions as necessary. And so for the electricity system, for example, it's if you're in a world with increased renewable penetration, like how do you how do you ensure this reliability and flexibility of the electricity system? Because it's a very difficult system to manage. And so how do you uh, put in place policies and mechanisms so, such that you incentivize these types of activities. So this investment in the network, but also maybe new business models or market structures where you have producers and consumers and you have battery storage and you have decisions made on a very, very quick kind of small time scale that may be uh, smaller than policymakers and regulators are used to thinking about now. So it really highlights that there is sort of this un unknown uh, approaching but I think we're seeing a lot of activity just in research and even in the academic literature looking at different market structures and policy design. But it really highlights the need that maybe the, the business as usual, uh, previous way of thinking about how the electricity system works, will need to be flexible and updated. And so um, it really highlights a world of kind of increasing flexibility and uh, adaptability, mm -hmm. both for technology but also on the policymakers mm -hmm. and regulators. The, um, on the challenge side, you know, the, what is happening between uh, the U.S. and China in terms of um, trade negotiations, and, and I guess some of the, the U.S.-China discussion goes beyond just the strictly trade, but, you know, it concerns, uh, you know, the global economy. Everyone's watching, uh, um, you know, as to how that may impact their sort of supply chain and et cetera. For many of these uh, APEC uh, economies, what are some of the, um, I guess, the, some of the impacts that they're starting to see, uh, whether it's the pattern of energy trade or investment? Well, APEC was, was set up to support economic growth among its 21 member economies uh, by accelerating regional economic integration. So trade is very important to, to APEC. And <clears throat> although APEC really hasn't studied the problem, I mean, it's, it's clear that a trade war uh, would reduce economic growth in, in uh, China and the U.S. Um, from an energy point of view, 
uh, a trade war has the potential to reduce energy security, although bilateral trade is has only really a small effect on the, the world market for oil and gas. Um, where we could see an effect is on the penetration of solar photovoltaics into the United States, since uh, China is, is, a, is a major supplier of, of solar cells uh, for the U.S. I think it's the the trade war is one of these sort of unknown unknowns, uh, if I can quote. Mm-hmm. And it's when we're performing these types of projections, it's very difficult to to include include these types of you know black swan events. Um, but I think just from our you know kind of understanding of the situation thus far. Um, if you were in a situation where a trade war affected economic activity uh, across the region, we'd expect that to translate into reduced uh, energy demand because economic growth is one of the key drivers of, of energy demand in the region. And so um, without a trade war, we're seeing economic growth increase, and thus energy demand is increasing. But a trade war and any potential uh, decrease in economic activity could reduce energy demand. So uh, some of these economies are uh, quite, you know, uh, large, like the U.S. and China, but there are also many economies that are very important, but still, you know, um, you know, smaller, uh, if you will. But um, you know, but which of the economies do you think are, um, you know, perhaps underappreciated? Is some of the, you know, what are some of the economies that we, you know, we should be paying a lot more attention to better appreciate where this uh, group of economies uh, headed? I think within Southeast Asia, Indonesia is a very interesting economy to watch. Um, it is made up of thousands of islands, which presents its own sort of complexities and issues with uh, building an electricity system because you have parts of the economy that are isolated from each other. So, um, But you also have very, very large metropolitan areas like Jakarta is, is massive. And so this there's not only a lot of um, demand in the, the building side of things, but transport is a very, very key issue. So how do you move the people around uh, is, is something to watch. And so as we see Southeast Asian uh, energy demand growing, Indonesia is, is one of these economies to really watch um, because it already has a large population and that's expected to grow. And so you have all these considerations. How do you provide electricity access to these communities? And so not everybody lives in these mega, sort of this mega metropolitan area, but you have smaller villages and usually there's mountains in the way and you know or there's an island so how do you get electricity to these different parts of the economy and so i think there's a lot of interesting ideas that people could come up with thinking about you know do you have more distributed networks does how does renewable support this activity i think one of the important things to to remember about southeast asia is that the population is is relatively young um, in the united states or, or japan we think of you know the population is graying, but it's not true in Southeast Asia. Across Vietnam and Thailand and Indonesia, um, we've, got, we've got young populations um, uh, working on, on developing their, their skills and, and, uh, and, and building a life, and that, that really has a big impact on energy demand. Now this was fantastic. Um, thank you so much, Jim and David, for joining CSIS uh, Energy Podcast Series. Well, thank you for, for having us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Want to find out more? Find a link to the APEC Energy Outlook in our episode description. And as always, thanks for listening. Find more episodes of Energy 360 on CSIS.org, on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy.